I have a video first, and I want you to watch it, and then we're going to talk about it. Okay, what in the world was that? What was that about? Anybody have any idea? No, you're going to have to talk. I'll call on you. So, any, who, who? What? You're watching that. You didn't think anything? You just watched it and it spun around? What was that? That one was a bully. Which one? The big triangle was a bully. Anybody? What was going on in the story? Was there, what was going on there? Look like what? Sorry? He didn't like things that were different than him. Okay. What were you were saying? Parent trying to put the kids back in the box. Anybody else have a different interpretation? <laughs> that, you don't have any kids sitting around you right now, do you? Oh, okay. All right. Uh, huh. Huh, okay, we'll talk about that later. Um, anybody else? Parents, kids in a box, anybody else telling themselves something different as they watched it? And then broke his own house down at the end. How would you describe the big triangle? Angry, frantic, controlling, I heard bully. Any other words? How about the little triangle? Free-spirited, okay. What else? Scared, persistent. How about the circle? Thought about the circle much? No ways, we're not a circle crowd. Any, anybody? Circle? Sneaky. Sneaky on the... So this video is from 1944. It is called the Hyder Simmel Illusion. It was used in some scientific experimentation about perception. And the truth is, there is no meaning to that video. <laughs> it's a made-up video of a shape seemingly moving outside of a box, other shapes moving around, shapes going inside. What's happening is your brain is a story-making machine. And in fact, you cannot keep it from making up a story about what is going on. Whatever you were, whatever qualifications, whatever human characteristics or character you were ascribing to the big triangle, the big bully. Anybody here think of that as the male triangle? Let's be honest. Was it the male? It was a guy, wasn't it? Everybody thought, it's a big guy. It's probably the dad. The girl's a circle. She's going out with this triangle who's really just like the dad, and the dad knows it, and the dad doesn't like him, so he's trying to keep him apart. <laughs> right? You could tell that story. You're all laughing because it's all, everybody's sort of like, oh, wow, huh? That's what your brain does. Your brain makes stories. Even when it's just random shapes from a 70-year-old video moving around on a screen, your brain makes stories. Why does your brain make stories? It makes stories because God made your brain to make stories. Your brain has two systems in it. It has a fast system and a slow system. Your fast system is the story-making machine of your brain. The slow system is the analytic side, the kind that did algebra and calculus and sat and 
futzed over things and tried to figure out how to balance the checkbook. That's not the story-making side of your brain. Now, while you're trying to balance the checkbook, the story-making side of your brain is saying something to yourself about hating to do math or not liking your spouse or significant other spending so much money like other things are going on. But that slow part of your brain is the analytical part of your brain. That's why we say jump to conclusions. It is very easy for us to take three events and weave them together into a story, especially one about our spouse and why they're doing something, or our boss, why they're doing something, why they're this evil, menacing presence and character in our life, right? It's very easy for us to weave that together. That's what a story is. A story is us looking at events in our life And connecting them together. The things that we use to connect events together in our lives are a story. Now the word story comes from the Latin historia. My kids, because they've had Latin uh, at school, will uh, correct me on the pronunciation on the drive home. But let's just say the pronunciation is historia. When you see that, you see two words in there, right? You see the word story, but you also see history. So history and story come from the same. That word also gets translated as account accounts we give of things. When we look back in the past of our lives, the way we connect and chain all of that together is a story. And God made us this way. He made us so that we are story-making machines. Now, I'm going to tell you that I think the Psalms are a story that's inside of a bigger story, and that bigger story is actually inside of a much bigger story, and I promise it will be relevant to your life before we're all done. So we've been looking at the Psalms. This is actually the last uh, talk in a whole series we're doing on the Psalms. The first time I talked, we, I did sort of the setup. What was the Psalms about, right? We talked about Psalm 1. Josh did last week Psalm 2. Psalm 1 and 2 actually set up both of the books. And talk about its wisdom literature. It's made to instruct us. Psalm 2 is all about it's about a king and a kingdom. And we're going to hear about those two stories and how they relate to one another this morning. So why do I think it's a story? Or you could be asking yourself, wait, the Psalm's just a bunch of poems and songs that are all sort of put together. How in the world? He's, I think he's making this up, that the Psalms are actually a story. Here's why I think this. They're arranged in five books. Like the Torah. If you were here last time, whenever I explained that the five books of the Psalms, a good rabbi scholar would tell you that David gave us the five books of the Psalms the way Moses gave us the five books of the law or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the story of sort of the establishing of the people of Israel. And so there's a mirror to them there. Now, when were these books put together into five books? Because I don't know if you ever noticed as you're reading through the Psalms, you get Psalm 42 and it's like book two. Wait, where was book one? Oh, you go to Psalm 1. Oh, look, it was book one. Huh. I wonder how many other books there are, right? And you never really even think about it. Well, they were arranged in the post-exile period. If you're hearing post-exile and you're like, I have no earthly idea what he's talking about, we'll explain what post-exile means. They were finished collecting these together around 300 B.C., if you were here when we talked at Christmas, one of the things I talked about is the between the sort of Malachi 4, 5, and 6 and the first book of Matthew, there were 400 years. And many people call them the silent years. I hate that they're called the silent years because God was clearly not silent during that period. 
people were collecting all of these songs together and putting them together and structuring them into the Psalms. They were also writing Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Those are fairly significant books in the story of the Old Testament, as we will see. And this was the second temple period. So what does the second temple period mean, and what is this all about? That's what we're going to go into. Here's the five books and how they break down. You don't need to write all that down. You can Google it at any time. It's in your Bible, I promise, right? So this is the way they break down. Here's roughly how these books were collected together. The first, oh, it all went away. There it is. The first book is really about David and his laments. The second book transitions from David and his lamenting into Solomon. The third book, we see rejection and remembrance of what God has done for them. The fourth book, we see them bringing the exiles home. And the fifth book ends in sort of this ascent and praise. So the book begins with the laments and it ends with the song of ascents. And it's important to know when all of these books were brought together and what the significance is and why would they bring these books together in this specific way. If you were the people collecting all of these songs together after the exile, here's what your life looks like. Let's imagine we're a community of people and we're living in Jerusalem and it's 400, 300 B.C. So before Christ is coming... What's going on? If I look around, you know what I see? I see by 515 B.C. there's a temple in Jerusalem. The temple had been destroyed in 586. So 70 years previous, the temple had been wiped out. It had been prophesied that it was going to be wiped out. Why was it wiped out? It was wiped out because Israel did not follow God. You know about all the story of Noah and the patriarchs and Joshua and Moses and the establishment there. And then they wanted a king and they got Saul. The Lord rejected Saul. You had David. David sinned. We talked about that when Nick spoke on Psalm 51. And that sin had consequences. It meant that some of his children, Absalom, rebelled against him. And there was a division of the kingdom. The kingdom of Israel now became the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom never had a good king, and it fell. The southern kingdom, it was back and forth and back and forth and back and forth on being a good king or not. Always the line of David in the southern kingdom, and eventually it fell to Babylon. And all of the exiles were taken into Babylon. If you were here when we talked through the book of Daniel, Daniel was a prophet to the exiles. So when you hear about that period of exiles, it's 586 B.C. That's the period. They were there for 70 years. That's what was prophesied in the book of Jeremiah. And then Chronicles talks about the kings in the fall. Ezra is the man that went back and they found the law. They went back to Jerusalem and they found the law and began to read it. Nehemiah was actually the one who talked to Cyrus and talked him into rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. And so the people were actually seeing the faithfulness of God to save them for 70 years, to bring them back. Now they were here. They had the walls around. They had people were coming from all over back to Jerusalem. They had established the temple and worship was going on. But what they didn't have is a king on the throne. And what they were seeing in the law and all of the promises is God had promised them that there would always be one of David's descendants 
on the throne. And what they understood was is that it was the unfaithfulness of their grandparents and their parents that they were now living in. Imagine we're this people and we're hearing these, this law, hearing these stories that had been passed down from generation to generation. These stories that are so woven into the fiber of who we are. If we came back, it's because those stories became our identity. Ten of the 12 tribes never came back. They assimilated. Two tribes returned. And those that returned, their identity was still a part of here. Remember Daniel. He would pray every day, three times a day. What would he look back to? He would look back to this city, Jerusalem, and remind himself, that's where I'm from. They were back to the place of their identity and their home. And they're collecting these stories together. And they put them together in a very specific way. And it begins with them asking questions. Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. So we learn Psalm 1 and 2 really set up what the whole book's about. 3 just starts right off. David's fleeing from Absalom and he says, How many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of him, God will not deliver me. Psalm 4, another lament. I'll I'll fly through these. There's no way for me to put all of it up. It's in here in your Bible. I would encourage you to look at the beginning of the books and the end of each book and see how they've woven this story together. Psalm 4, another lament. Answer me when I call you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me. Hear my prayer. Psalm 5, listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Psalm 6, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy for me, Lord, for I am faint. Psalm 7, Lord, my God, save and deliver me from all who pursue me or they will tear me apart like a lion. 8, 9, 10, 11. 11 says, for look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. 13, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? We get all the way to 41. Still a book by David. And we end with a a doxology. There's a doxology that ends all of these books that sort of anchors back to the praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And 42 opens up again with this longing for the Lord. Psalm 42 are by the sons of Korah. We talked about who those were. Korah was a man in, in Moses' time who was literally swallowed up by the earth because of his rebellion. And these were his descendants writing this. And they're longing again for the Lord. These first two books are these laments and longing as the deer pants for streams of water. So my soul longs for you, my God. And we move on to the end of book two, to Psalm 72. One of the two psalms written by Solomon. And here he is praying, sort of the prayer of his father, David, endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. It goes on to say, as the transition's happening from David to Solomon, Lord, help me lead these people well. And 72 actually ends saying, this concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. Book three opens up. 
with Psalm 73, which Jim spoke on. It's interesting how many of these psalms weave the story together, even the ones that we chose, not intentionally sitting down and saying, which ones do we want to tell, but these ones that are anchored at the beginning and the ends of the books move this narrative forward, this narrative of lament of realizing that David was supposed to be on the throne and then Solomon was on the throne, but something went wrong. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You can imagine how relevant that would be. Here we are, Lord, our walls are barely built. We've barely got a temple up. And when we look around, what do we see? We see Greeks all around us, horrific battles and sin against the Jewish people by the Greeks that were coming up from the south, from Egypt, and down from the north. This is the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. We've talked about him before, the one who literally came into the temple and slaughtered a pig and defiled the entire temple. That was this period of time. And then the Romans are coming in. When they look around them, all they see are great kings and kingdoms rising up. And they're saying, Lord, where is our king on the throne? Where is he? This book, we go all the way to 89 at the end, and there is a remembrance at the very end of 89, right at the end of book three. Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? Book four opens with remembering, going back past David. It's saying, Lord, you were faithful to David, but you know what? It's not just David you've been faithful to. If we look all the way back, Psalm 90 is a book, is the the only psalm written by Moses. They go all the way back to the time of Moses, where Moses is saying, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout the generations. But still we're consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Our days may come to 70 or 80 if our strength endures. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. And we slide to the end of this book and we see in 106 towards the end them realizing what had happened. 106 is a long long psalm. It's them remembering the entire story and getting to the very end and saying, "You know what, Lord, you were right because our forefathers defiled themselves by what they did. By their deeds they prostituted themselves. Save us, Lord, our God." And gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Lord, we've sinned and we've done wrong. Please gather us back together. This time in exile, we need it to be over and we need to return. And then we see in book five, the return beginning. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the lands, from east and west and north and south. Some wandered in the desert, they were hungry and thirsty, some in the darkness and other darkness, but he brought them back. And book five moves into a series that's called the Song of Ascents, and it was for not only the exiles who returned, but anyone who was out who would return to Jerusalem during any of the festivals, especially the Passover. It was called the Song of Ascents because they would sing them as they marched up the hill into Jerusalem. 
And the whole doxology of book 5 is Psalm 146, 47, 48, 49, which begin and end with praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And so this whole book that began in this idea of lament, this lament of David, a transition to Solomon, a realization that they had sinned, a prayer for the return, ends with teaching us and telling us who should praise in Psalm 50. Praise the Lord in his sanctuary. Praise him in the mighty heavens for his acts of power, for his surpassing greatness with the sounding of trumpet and harp and lyre and timbrel and dancing and strings and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals, with the resounding cymbals. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. What these people needed is they needed a book that could remind them that he had been faithful to them since this fall, this exile, and this return. And then what they're also doing is they're acknowledging, you know what, this is one part of our story here. This idea that the Lord established a monarchy, that the monarchy was destroyed, and our city was destroyed, and our our nation was destroyed, and we spent 70 years in exile because of our disobedience. But he was faithful, and he has returned us, and we have rebuilt the walls of the city and the temple at the heart, but we haven't rebuilt the king We don't have the throne, we don't have the palace, we don't have a ruler, we're waiting for that. And they needed to remind themselves that this story, this self-contained story, was part of a bigger story of their entire people that went back to a Genesis creation and a flood that destroyed everything, but the faithfulness of God through it and through the patriarchs and Joshua and Moses and the judges and the establishment again of the kings, even through the exile and the return of their people. This story is just a small piece of our bigger story as a people. And not only that, we sit on the other side of Jesus coming, the, their king that they were waiting for actually coming in the cross in his resurrection. And we now sit and we see that this entire story actually sits inside of a much bigger story, a story of God creating everything and having a purpose and a plan. Creating a garden and telling us, you know what? I'm making all of creation for you. You go and cultivate it, was the word that he used, which is where we get our word culture. Go and make something of the word. Go build cultures. Go and make music and art and business and life and gardens and homes and prosper together. Just don't touch that tree. And yet we touch that tree in the center and this sort of stain that's touched everything. You ever gotten like uh, super glue on your fingers and you can't get it off or some kind of ink and you rub it and it just keeps like it spreads? The more you do it. Remember that Cat in the Hat book? The Cat in the Hat comes back and they had the pink stuff and the more you wiped it up, the more it got everywhere. That's kind of what sin feels like, isn't it? It's like the more you try to wipe it off or the, like the messes of life, you just keep trying to wipe them up and the more you wipe, the worse they get. We needed somebody to come and just clean it up once and for all. And that is the redemption story that we live inside of. We're here waiting for the finish. Huh. Maybe we can relate a little bit to people that were living 2,000 years ago, sitting in a kingdom that had just 
had tenuous circumstances, just a little wall up and a little temple there and a little place to sort of, uh, you know, sort of do their life and, and come together and worship. And looking outside, it really seemed like there was some dangerous things around and you never knew who was going to come in or what was going to come in and encroach on it. And man, we could sure use a king about now. I think we might have a little more in common with that group than it, it seems like at first glance. Because we're waiting for him to return. And yet while we wait, we're about our father's business. I love that when Jesus says that. I was about my father's business. What is the father's business now? The redemption part is done. I don't know if we've all realized that. He is not in the redemption business anymore. He's done with the redemption business. There is our acceptance of redemption and the part that he plays in that with us depending on if you're a Calvinist or an Arminian. That's a talk for another day. The redemption is over. Jesus has done that. He can't do any more than he has already done. He has done that part. So what is he doing now? He's restoring broken things. It's why Jesus said sheep and goat separation looks like people who break stuff and people who restore broken things. What's broken? That's why he said go take care of widows. There's a brokenness in a marriage. Take care of orphans. There's a brokenness in family. Take care of the poor. There's a brokenness systemically in the structures of your society that cause some to be incredibly wealthy and to lord that over the poor. And that cause some to be poor. Go and care for them. Go restore brokenness, both in the system but also in that person's life. It's why he said go take care of the sick. There's brokenness in our bodies. We need to go restore the sick. It's why he said go see the prisoner because there's brokenness in a life. Go and restore broken things. That's the, that's the, the task that he has given us. Now, it's the place where we all find ourselves in this story within a story, within a story. And you look now, right? Look how small that once huge story. Can you imagine if you were in the midst of the exile, how gigantic and looming that would be? To be in Babylon, to wonder, was it ever going to be okay? And yet we can see 2,000, 2,500 years removed. We can see what a small piece of the overall story it really is. Most of our things like that in life, so many things seem to just cloud everything and we don't realize where we are in the story and we don't realize who's actually writing this story. Now you might be saying, hey, that's neat, Sean. Thanks for showing me that. Glad you went and found that the five books that some scholars have noticed that they were put together that way. What does that have to do with me right now? Here's my question I would ask. Where are you in your story? One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is Ephesians 2.10. And it says, we are his workmanship. That word workmanship is the Greek word poema. You've heard me speak before. I literally try and weave this in every time because it's just so profound, I think. You are literally the poetry of God. Your life is like this book of Psalms. And if you think that he isn't writing a great story in your life, then you don't understand who this storyteller is. 
Again, he made you so that story is significant. He built the idea and the concept of drama. He built it into our lives anyway. In fact, he says in the New Testament, count it all joy when you face trials. Because guess what? Not only are you going to get character, you're going to have a really good story. And I know how much you guys love to tell stories. In fact, think about your day. Think about your weekend. Anybody here want to confess to binge watching more than four hours of Netflix this weekend? Right? What do we do? There we go. There's some hands. Right? What do we do? We love stories. What do we pass around on social media all the time? We pass around stories. Those stories are like glue for us. When we get together, we tell stories about our kids. We tell stories about our dogs. We tell stories about our day, about our life. We even gossip. We even tell stories we shouldn't tell about one another, especially the juicy ones, right? When somebody makes really bad decisions, nobody knows about it, and you kind of want to tell those, right? Yeah, no, nobody here does that? Okay. Right? We love telling stories. It's what we're about. Oftentimes, we're stuck in a place in our life, and we don't realize it. We are stuck in a part of our story, and because we're in it, we can't step back and go, oh, okay, I'm, I'm in this part of the story. This is supposed to happen. I'm in the hard part of the story, or I'm, I'm right before I'm about to take this enormous risk. Usually on the other side of risk is the, bi- is the big thing. It's either going to work out or it's going to be, uh, it's going to kind of work out, and then I've got another thing that I have to go and do, and it's going to be a little harder, and then it's got to be a little bit harder and a little bit harder. That's the stories building to the climax. Maybe you're past the climax of the story, and it's unhappy. That's a kind of story. Not every story is, has a happy ending. Some stories are tough and difficult. And I think the thing to see is that your story right now sits inside of a bigger story of your life. And your life sits in a bigger story of what God is doing right now at this moment in history, which sits inside of a bigger story of what is God doing? And do we trust him that he is writing and architecting a story that's going from here to here. Because if you think about it, our Bible begins in a garden and it ends in a city, doesn't it? I, now, I like gardens, but I really like cities, especially if cities were all great, especially if cities didn't have the stain of sin on them. I love going to good restaurants. I love parks. I like seeing people everywhere. I like going shopping. I like great architecture. I like seeing plays and theater and restaurants, all of it. It's great. The city, a good city, is about the best we can do with what he gave us. Think about that. Us living in community together us planning and building this thing together. That's where he says this thing is going. And this one started with a tree in the middle that we couldn't touch. Guess what the city has in the middle of it? Anybody remember Revelation 21? What's that new Jerusalem have in the middle of it? It's got a tree in the middle of it, doesn't it? And that tree, its leaves are for the healing of the nations. That tree has good things attached to it. And it looks really far off. But it sits on the other side of another tree right in the middle that a man named Jesus hung on. A man who spent time in a garden sweating blood. For us. And a man who endured a separation that he couldn't fathom. 
hanging on a tree on a hill overlooking a city that he cared about and he loved and he had preserved through time. He's preserved it through time still. Like that city is still there. It is still preserved, even though it is tenuous, even though there are nations around it who want it to exist or not exist. He's still preserving. He's still writing and telling the story. And this morning, why this is relevant is because we're all in a place in our story. And maybe the thing we need is we need the Holy Spirit to come and push us to the next part of the story. Or maybe we need for him to come and pluck us out and hold us up and go, look at the story I've been doing with your life. Look how faithful I've been to you in your life. Do you think I'm not going to be faithful now? Or maybe he needs to pull us back even further and say, look, look at this country I set you in. Do you understand the privilege that you have right now to live in this place, in this time, in history? What else could you be doing now? Or maybe he needs to pull you out even further and reassure you that this is going to a good place. That he is a good author of a good story. So whether you're in the creation part of your story where you're saying, maybe because it's summer you just had some time off. And if you're like me, time off and sort of the vacuum that that creates and the lack of emails and phone calls and project deadlines and everything else can sort of what rushes in is me thinking about all of the events. I look back at the history and I begin to give an account of it and I begin to tell a story. And sometimes that story doesn't feel as meaningful or significant or profound or whatever it is that I need it to feel like or that we all want it to feel like. Perhaps we're at that, Lord, am I really poema? Are you really writing a poem with my life? Is this a good poem? Or have I grabbed the quill and am I scratching out stuff? Maybe we're at a part of the story where the stain of sin has hit our life. Maybe through our own choices. Maybe the choices of a spouse or someone else. Maybe through somebody you don't even know. Maybe it's the stain of the brokenness of our own bodies has hit you. Maybe we're right at a place where we're wrestling with this whole idea of redemption. And this whole idea of a Jesus, and do we really need it, and is it really possible? Maybe you're looking at somebody in your life who has been redeemed, and you're like, I don't know if I can forgive them. I don't know if they're redeemable. Or maybe you're sitting here 2,000 years after Jesus came, and you're like, man, that whole he's coming back thing, I, I don't know. Maybe you're wrestling. Maybe it's like, did he forget us? Is that a story people made up? Or maybe you're at a place where you're like, Lord, I, everything feels broken in my heart, in my relationships, in my life, in my work, in the world, and it's overwhelming to me. Or maybe you're just profoundly aware that you're waiting for something. And wherever you're at this morning, here's what I will tell you. What would be a shame is if all you did was come listen to me tell you about this. Because the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us also says he will be here in our midst when two or three are gathered. And it's impossible that there aren't people right now who are hurting or aching or frustrated or any of the emotions that we see inside of the Psalms. 
And I hope what you hear this morning is no matter where you're at in your story, God is at work and he wants to work. And we are a body that together, it's like your body does when you stub your toe or you smash your thumb, you do this, right? Your whole body wraps around the hurt. If you're hurting, let us wrap around you and pray for you. If you feel stuck, let us come alongside of you and hold up your arms or breathe courage into you and encourage you. If you feel like you're waiting, if you feel like you're doubting, if you feel like you're skeptical, if you feel like you're thinking about chucking the whole thing, let us come around you and be a body together with you. The worship team's just going to play some music for a while, and here's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask you to be vulnerable, and I'm going to say, if you're thinking right now, oh, I wish... I wish somebody would stand with me about this because I'm, I'm at a place in my story that I need it. I'm going to ask you to stand. And we're going to gather around you and we're going to pray for you. Because that's what we do as a body. Because we're not alone in this. There's a couple right there. I'm going to say God sovereignly chose all of you that are sitting around them to be the body and love on them. So you guys gather around and pray. Who else? It's literally that easy. Okay, we have a prayer team, and the prayer team is going to come forward, or they'll be on the sides. We're going to move into a time of worship together. So, won't you guys stand? There's communion on the sides as well. We invite everyone to take, just don't take it alone, go with somebody. And anytime during this, worship time, go find somebody. If there's something that, you, that you're at a place where you're like, Lord, I need somebody to stand with me in this. Don't leave here without that, no matter what it is. Because that, to me, that would be a shame if we did that. Let me pray for us. Lord, I, I feel like, and I'm guessing everybody else does, that we're, we're about eight different places and eight different stories in life. And some of them have celebration attached. Some of them have heartache attached. Some of them have, why did you do that, attached to it. And I think, Lord, what we all hope for and desperately long for and really need is to know that you see us and that you know our story, and that you know what's going on, and that you care about it, and that you're working on our behalf, that somehow this is going to turn out okay. Not only this little thing we're dealing with, but the bigger sort of arc of our lives, God. Are we going to make it? Is it going to be okay? 
what's going to happen in, in, in the bigger sense of it. And God, are, are you in control and do you care about what's going on in this little specific situation, God, that I'm dealing with or the thing that's big and looming and seems like a crisis that's impossible to get through? or in the grand sweep, Lord, of our families or our our lives or our nation right now or what's going on in the world, Lord. We're all living inside of multiple stories. And the thing that we need, Holy Spirit, is we need you and we need each other. And I pray that we could be the body for one another. And I pray that we would be a place where it's always safe to share our story, God. Every bit of our story, Lord. I pray that we would be a safe story place. So Lord, as we enter back into worship, I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd be here in our midst, that you'd touch the lives that that stood, that you would touch the lives that didn't stand, God that you would go with us this week. In Jesus' name.